The following is a conversation with Alexander Siegenfeld, who is a PhD candidate in physics at MIT, and he also works as a researcher at Nexi and at the MIT Media Lab. Uh, at Nexi, he works a lot with um, uh, Professor Yanir Baryam, and he has published a few papers with um, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb as well. Uh, this conversation was very light and personal and uh, there was a good good cohesion in the whole conversation. So I hope that you will like it. You will find uh, links to books that we will mention and research papers that we will men- mention in the, in the show notes below. How did you get into the field of complexity science? So my undergraduate research was in uh, physics and mathematics um, and a little uh, a little bit of chemistry. And so I entered uh, graduate school uh, thinking I would just pursue a pretty uh, standard uh, physics PhD um, in uh, solid state physics, the, uh, the theory of uh, things such as superconductivity or other similar uh, phenomena. And... Um, about one year into my PhD, I realized that I was far more interested by other questions, questions related to politics, economics, um, questions about society. And so I felt like I really wanted to, you know, if I was going to be spending so much time in a PhD, I wanted to really um, spend that time uh, researching the questions that uh, I felt were most interesting to me. And so I thought, um, is there, do I need to switch PhD programs? Is there a way I can do this within the physics PhD program? I wanted to find some way to you to uh, still have my background be relevant because I had already put in a decent amount of time learning a lot of physics techniques. And so I ended up just speaking with a number of professors uh, at uh, Harvard and MIT in the Cambridge area um, and uh, ended up uh, uh, speaking with them um, uh, Professor Bariam at the uh, New England Complex Systems Institute, and he also uh, had a physics background, but was now studying these societal questions I was interested in. And so I uh, started uh, doing work with him. And at the same time, I was also interested in this uh, group in the um, MIT Media Lab. Uh, it was called the Laboratory of Social Machines at the time, but is now the uh, Center for Constructive Communication. And so I started doing work there as well. And the overall flavor being sort of applying um, methods and concepts from physics uh, more broadly. Um, so some people would argue that it's um, that it's not really necessary to have a background in physics um, to, to get into the field of, of um, economics, for example, and other fields that are related. And physics is arguably a bit harder than those, or it's in the general population, people see them, that subject is harder. Do you think do you, that you have had an advantage over other people with a social science background in this field? Or do you think that it's, that it, the approach is just different, but that the efficiency is kind of similar? Or yeah, do you, do you regret studying physics? Would you rather have studied social science in your undergrad or yeah what what do you think about that well i definitely don't regret studying physics because i find physics really uh really cool and really fascinating what 
is nice about physics is that it really gives you a strong foundation in modeling in general because you're practicing modeling these systems that we actually sort of do have a lot of experimental data on. And so, um, you know, if your models don't work or don't capture the behaviors of interest, um, you can really see that. Um, that said, I don't think that physics is physics is like the only way into social science and certainly not e not even the only way into um, the field of uh, complex system science uh, in general. There are some complex system scientists who come at it from uh, different backgrounds. Um, so everyone everyone's like studying these very complicated problems uh, with a different um, set of perspective and tools and uh, ways of thinking about things. And, you know, that's probably for the best because these are difficult problems that require uh, many different approaches and uh, different uh, ways of uh, thinking about things. Um, one, uh, I think one thing to watch out for if one is like, you know, a physicist trying to study these uh, social systems is that there's a tendency to sort of use models from physics and then sort of directly graph them on to social systems. And that generally doesn't work because, you know, humans are not electrons. Um, so, um, you don't want to just sort of take a physics model and then sort of cram the social system into that physics model. Instead, it's more like to take a step back and look at what is the general approach that physicists have, take, that have taken that have made them successful rather than their particular models. And, you know, what lessons can one draw from that in order to uh, um, gain insight into social systems? And so one thing that physicists have been able to do is they've been able to understand systems even when they haven't understood the individual components um, of those systems. So for instance, you know, physicists understood how sound waves worked even before they understood what atoms are. So you can understand certain large-scale properties of the system even if you don't know the details. And that's especially relevant for social science because we have a very incomplete notion of how even an individual person behaves. So any hope of understanding the collective behaviors of people or understanding these social systems, to some extent, your description must not be dependent on all of the individual details of the system. If someone is a student in upper secondary school or high school, or is kind of equally good at both social science and and physics and other natural sciences and wants to get, in, get into the field of public administration or public policy or economics, would you advise them to go for the physics route or the natural science route? Or would you say that it's better to, to take the social science route? I think in general, it's probably easier to take the social science route. Um, it's certainly very difficult, um, you know, to uh, to sort of switch fields, um, and you know, um, certainly if you were to apply to a physics program and say that you wanted to study the social systems, that might be sort of a difficult proposition. Part of my path is because I went into the physics program, you know, originally honestly thinking that I wanted to do standard physics things. So, you know, I would say if some if you're interested in economics, you should you know, probably aim for an economics program. And if you're interested in political science, aim for a political science program. But, you know, that doesn't prevent you from like also studying uh, physics as an undergrad. Certainly there are a lot of uh, economists who have majored in physics and as an undergraduate. And I think it also doesn't mean that one can't like, you know, stay abreast of the uh, um, literature and physics or 
in complex system science or uh, try to try to bridge those uh, as a uh, as an explicit goal. But I think as a general rule, uh, let's say you wanted to study um, economics, it would probably be easier to be within an economics department and then bringing in tools from physics from the outside rather than uh, it's like generally easiest to be in the department of the subject matter that you're studying. Um, and because it's easier to sort of transport tools than to transport like sort of local subject matter expertise. Right. Um, you you have an uh, I'll link to this article in the show notes, but you have written a paper about um, election outcomes, and you have examined how how uh, not how opinions themselves change, but how opinions uh, have an effect on elections, and you have. Um, described uh, it as an unstable system at at the time um and i when i read your paper uh, when i skim through it I, i you know one can see that there is that you have used some kind of uh or you, the basis of your paper or or the the other papers that you read to to write this or to come up with the method what had to do with one dimensional continuous spaces and multidimensional spaces and um, in an int- uh, in an interview about this paper you you mentioned that the uh, from election to election you can you can describe the changes in um, election turnouts as a pendulum that swings uh, faster and faster or harder and harder does this have to do uh, to do with the multidimensional space or the one dimensional space is it in that space that the pendulum is swinging or is the space something else uh, that you have used, you know, and then I'm talking about the space that, that is in your method. Yeah, um, so that's a, that's a good question. I guess just generally to uh, frame uh, that paper, uh, what we were, so what we're interested is in this process of how you take a diverse set of citizen opinions and how that process actually yields a single opinion of whoever is elected for a in any uh, given election. So we're interested in the pro and we can think of this at a very like sort of high level bird's eye view as like this sort of almost black box where you input citizen opinions and you input all of these opinions from all the citizens and you output the opinion of the elected official. And we can ask what are the proper what are the general properties we can say about this process. And so, you know, One of the things that uh, one of the things we looked at, as you mentioned, is whether this process is stable or unstable. So if this is a stable process, then small changes in opinion in the electorate yield similarly small changes in election outcome. So if the populace changes their opinion a little bit, then the election outcome similarly changes a little bit. But if this process is unstable, You can imagine this like a boulder perched at the top of a hill. A very small change, a very small push among the electorate can actually cause a dramatic swing in the election outcome. So the pendulum here is the um, election outcome. And the idea is that um, you could have relatively small changes in the um, citizens. Um, from election to election, the citizens may shift their opinions a little bit from left to right or whatnot. And but as a result of these relatively small changes in citizen opinion, you might actually get dramatic changes in election outcome. You might get, uh, you know, 
For instance, in the United States, you could get uh, someone like George W. Bush, and then Barack Obama, and then Donald Trump, and then Joe Biden. And the policy positions of these people are very, very far apart. Um, and so these are sort of the large changes that we see in election outcome, even though presumably the average American opinion hasn't shifted um, all the way, you know, from the right to the left and then back to the right and then all the way to the left again. The, the actual changes in citizen opinion have probably been much smaller. Um, so this is like a consequence of the instability that small changes yield these dramatic shifts in election outcome. And I described as a pendulum mainly just as like a visual metaphor there. Does that answer your question? Um, you know, the other part of the question is that you you mentioned about, so you have written that, um, uh, so elections f fundamentally mean aggregating many opinions into one. And then you mentioned that uh, um, that in most cases, uh, people usually um, uh, see uh, or they, they, they embed possible opinions in a one-dimensional continuous space. As So, for example, as a position on a left-right spectrum. But then you have mentioned that your results can be extended to a multi-dimensional space. What does that mean? Ah, uh, yes. Uh so, you know, throughout the main text of the paper, we sort of stick to one dimension where we assume that people's opinions can be described just by where they are in the left-right spectrum, both the citizens and the candidates. And that's really for ease of example and ease of exposition. But you could imagine, um, you could imagine, and in the uh, supplementary material, we show this, that you could uh, have opinions in some multidimensional space. Someone might have, you know, a certain opinion on long and economic access, and then other opinions around like um, along like social issues. And, you know, really each uh, different issue that they might have an opinion on could be a different, uh, a different dimension. Um, and so you can imagine this very high dimensional space that people have opinions in. And similarly, an elected official has opinions in a high dimensional space. And the basic ideas of the paper still hold. Um, you can ask whether, you know, the small changes in people's opinion in the multidimensional space yield similarly small changes in the outcome, or whether it causes the outcome to sort of swing uh, um, dramatically between like different spaces. And this, and this could also be within a multidimensional uh, space uh, as well. Speaking of multidimensional spa spaces, uh, I come to think about um, Hegel's idea of thesis and antithesis and synthesis, and even though, so so this is just an example to 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 kind of show that the concept of of pendulums or two poles, in, 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 in between which uh, one can say that the the general opinion of the people goes or the aggregate of the, so so. You know, when people try to describe uh, Hegel's dialectic or Hegel's idea of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, they usually take the example of politics in Europe. And during the Second World War, when well, one could say that okay, one pole was uh, what was um, capitalism, one pole was communism, and that you know, at one point in time, many countries were very communist, and then they turned to become ultra-capitalist, and then when they did that. Is, uh, at last, the pendulum, you know, just slowed down somewhere and landed somewhere in between. But then one, then two new poles arose, and so on and so forth. And one could say that 
This is just some kind of a simplification that there are not just two poles, but there are many, many poles in between which the pendulum or whatever you want to call it travels. But this has to do, this concerns with the change of opinions, opinions themselves. Uh, whilst your research concerns how, re, how opinions uh, affect elections and that elections themselves don't really rely that much on opinions, but that it, the, the system is so unstable that you don't really need that much change in opinion to, to achieve an, a cha change in, in the, the, the president, as you said. Do you think if we would see these two pendulums, the, the Hegel pendulum and your pendulum or whatever other kind of pendulum that would describe opinions themselves, do you think that there would be, that the pendulums would be, that the movement of the, them would be aligned in some way or that, they would just be ran that there wouldn't be any any connection between them or that they would be in conflict with each other yeah, do you have to say anything about that oh, yeah sure so i haven't conducted any formal research on this so this is uh, more speculative than what i was saying about um the elections themselves uh but sort of speculatively one can imagine that you know in terms of political opinion you have political opinions of the electorate and those feed into political opinions of the elected officials. The political opinions of the elected officials affect policy. They also may directly, um, you know, politicians can directly influence the opinions of the populace. So there's a sense in which the opinions of the elected officials feed back into the opinions of the populace. So that's sort of one feedback loop. Then, of course, there are a lot of other uh, loops as well involving the media, involving people talking to each other, involving technology, a lot of other things that are going on in society. So you can imagine a lot of these feedback loops. And we're and the, the paper just looks at sort of this one part, which is this translation from citizen opinions to election outcomes. And it's saying that, you know, election outcomes can sort of swing unstably, even if opinions are relatively stable. Um, but in this broader picture, the election outcomes can, you know, influence um, people's opinion. So if you start off with, you know, relatively small changes in citizen opinion, but then it causes large swings in the election outcome. And then that in turn, that in turn, you know, maybe speculatively could um, influence uh, citizen opinions and cause larger swings there. So there's a sense in which the uh, political, the instability that we see in elections um, and the instabilities that we see in government um, can maybe perhaps feed into uh, instability in uh, the or can cause larger swings in opinions or could uh, make it more difficult, not only for there to be compromise within government, but also could, you know, make it more difficult for there to be sort of compromise within the public sphere as well. Right. So if we if we see opinions as one entity and see election outcomes as another entity, these two entities have you know so the opinions affect the the election outcomes. So, so you know the both both entities affect uh, you know have an effect on each other, right? And that in in turn has to do with um, Carl Friston's idea of active inference. Um, but 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 before we go there, um, I would like to ask so you said that your research just shows that even though the opinions of the american people haven't changed that much the president's uh, so so the election outcomes have been very very extreme but one could argue that that could be quite 
that that, that, that is quite self-evident or that by just looking at people uh, or just you know following the general media and being on social media you can get get a broad understanding of the people's opinions and then you can kind of gather by yourself by qualitative analysis that okay the presidents are a bit more extreme than what the general population is so yeah just to be devil, devil's advocate why is your research useful or why, why do we need to model things in this way yeah it's a it's a good question um so yeah the empirical verification is pretty uh self-evident um so the question is really the question is really why do we see this phenomena and really putting a name to this phenomena uh so ha having a uh um you know the so the theory part of the paper, in the main, in the main, the paper is mainly a theoretical paper, is looking at this transition between stability and instability. It's pointing out that like elections don't actually necessarily have to be unstable like this. Uh, that's one regime they could be in. They could also be more stable, like as they were uh, between like say 1950 and 1970. Um, and so you know, part of the paper is pointing out that. In a very, very general sense, there are these two regimes that you can have stable and unstable. Another thing that the paper discusses, which I haven't mentioned yet, is um, representation. So we talk about political representation of an individual, and we define that by how much that individual, a change in that individual's opinion affects a change in the outcome of opinion. And one of the results of the paper is that there can be negative representation, that opinions can change in one direction, like, you know, people could become more liberal and or I should say could move to the left. And the result of that could be that the outcome uh, moves to the right um, or vice versa. Um, and so this is negative representation, because, in fact, you have this perverse uh, um, phenomena where, you know, you would think that, you know, if the citizenry becomes more liberal, but if the citizenry moves to the left, the outcome should reflect that. It should also move to the left, but that's not necessarily the case. And so we call this negative representation. And one of the key results of the paper is that unstable elections always contain negative representation. Um, if there's a, if the election's unstable, as we see that they are, like you said, it's sort of self-evident that they're unstable, and that also means that there's a negative representation. So this points to a, uh, this sort of shows that there's like a failure going on um, in terms of a representation that's pretty problematic. Um, the paper also uh, link. Uh, the paper also uh, discusses like you know what sort of things can contribute to this and one of the things it shows is that low voter turnout um low voter turnout uh contributes to this instability and so one of the ways to uh, decrease this instability is to increase a uh, voter turnout um it also shows how the two party a two party system which exists in say the united states although not in all countries can also contribute to that um, and so it indicates that like you know reforms that weaken the grip of the two party system such as ranked choice voting um, which is used in, for instance, Australia, and um, is also used increasingly in, um, it was a past statewide in Maine, it's uh, used in uh, various cities as well in the US, um, and I'm sure other places in the world as well, uh, can be helpful for reducing this uh, instability. Okay, so two things. Firstly, okay, there is, the, the, your research shows that you should vote, basically. But it it relies on a certain model, and models are, are, are never, you know, or people always question the accuracy of models. 
especially when you apply them in, in these settings. So, so the first part is, you know, when you want to, because when you conduct this research, you really want it to lead somewhere. So, and, and when the general population listens to, to researchers, they really want to be certain that the model is good. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that you have, um, you have written in your paper uh, that you have, you have uh, presented a, a specific model um, that demonstrates uh, this uh, concept of negative representation, how it can arise, uh, in, uh, which you talked about now, and that this model can be is shown to map onto some model of magnetic materials. So when and I I, I think that when regular social science public policy people would read that, they would immediately get scared and think that this is some these are some physicists that only know about magnetic materials and that they are reductionist uh, reductionists and that they have just created some model to you know that 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 is you know good in theory but in practice wouldn't be really useful what do you say about that that's a great question i mean the whole goal of complex system science is not to be reductionist um, that doesn't mean that complex system scientists always do a good job at not being a reductionist, but the the goal, um, and I alluded to this earlier, is that, you know, if you're making a model of a system, you want to make sure you're capturing the large scale behaviors of the system. You're never going to capture all of the details. So if you take a reductionist approach where you try to focus on some details, you're inevitably going to leave out other details. And, you know, and, and because you're including some details and not others, you might get the, the wrong large scale behavior. So it's generally not the approach that I took in this paper or in any of my research in general. Instead, what I'm really interested in is sort of modeling the large scale behaviors directly to try to make sure that um, we're uh, I try to make sure that rather than include some details and leave out others, that we're uh, I'm capturing the largest scale behaviors of uh, interest. And um, necessarily, a system will be simpler when you describe it sort of collectively than when you describe it individually. To describe, you know, what a system is doing at um, sort of very generally a large scale requires less detail than describing what, like, say, every single person in the um, in the system is doing. Yeah. So there was a. Uh, um, one of the uh, reviewers of the paper um, what, what is, is a political scientist and uh, actually uh, wrote a, a piece in uh, Nature Physics alongside the paper that was sort of describing its uh, implications uh, to uh, the field of political science. Um, so, so that could be, uh, that article could be a good thing to um, read if someone was interested in how this uh, sort of fit in um, or, or, or how this paper is viewed from a political scientist's uh, perspective. Right, I'll include it in the show notes. Um, okay, so um, now previously we talked about Carl Friston and his idea of active inference. When he talks about active inference, he usually talks about the brain as a statistical machine, which is an entity. And he says, or, or not the brain, but our bodies is an entity. And our bodies, so he talks about embodied conditions. So our whole bodies are serving our cognition and we are basically inference machines and we infer things we, we just infer things about the world and when he speaks about this he usually speaks about this in in the context of the free energy principle which states that we want to minimize uncertainty and he says that 
if we see the outer world or, world or the external world, you know, things that, they are, that are, aren't part of us as another entity, we have an effect on that entity and the entity has an effect on us. So, for example, if a lot of people want to reach to us, reach a certain, I don't know, um, and, uh, uh, coffee shop, which is at the opposite uh, of a certain uh, uh, metro uh, stairs, you know, the metro stairs that come up. And then let's say that you have to go around a park to reach the coffee shop. People will instead just go through uh, through the park. And in that way, there will be, uh, in a few months, there will arise a, what do you call it? Uh, like a dirt path? Yeah, exactly. So that's his way of showing that we affect, we have an effect in the world, and uh, and we try to have uh, to infer things about the world. And in, and we previously said that election outcomes is an entity, and opinions is uh, on a, can be seen as another entity, and then you, you can see things between them. In, in complexity science, you, you know the idea is basically that you want to. You you want to, you don't really want to describe everything, but you want to to reach certain or you want to see certain patterns or some deterministic laws in the big system. And um, and when Carl Friston talks about minimizing uncertainty, people usually say that, and he has surely addressed this in a good way. But the critique is sometimes I don't know if if the the Critics have really read his research very good, very thoroughly, but the critique is sometimes that all kinds of uncertainty isn't really good uncertainty, or we are not really, we don't. I don't really want to know. I don't really need to know um, the hair color of my neighbor. It's just, it's just not really that interesting. But there are certain other kinds of uncertainty which are more interesting, and so when we are trying to, I can always. When I when I think about my past decisions, I can always I can always agree that okay, I was trying to minimize uncertainty, but then the question is what kind of uncertainty is worth reducing? And so the, there hasn't been any clear, easy explanation to that. And in your research, you're you're kind of doing the same. Is it true then that you're trying to reach some some deterministic laws that describe as much as possible? Uh, of the complex system, and what does that, in, in, if if so, what does what what does describing much mean, or is it something else that you 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 want to that you want to uncover? What kind of uncertainty is it that, or how would you just describe that and 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 uh, compare that with other other forms of uncertainty, which isn't really that interesting? So I wouldn't say, I would not say I don't think we're trying to like you know necessarily uncover deterministic. Uh, or not or deterministic laws um, or, you know, trying to predict the future. Because a lot of these systems are chaotic. We're very small, um, where, you know, very small changes in initial condition can actually lead to large changes in outcome. I think the broader sense of things that we're trying to do is we're trying to map out the space of possible behaviors of the system or sort of general properties that hold regardless. Um, so, for instance, and this just this uh, connects to the previous question a bit. You asked, like, how do we know, like, if a model is correct or not with, like, say, the elections? So, you know, the assumption, the uh, property that unstable elections have negatively represented opinions makes essentially no assumptions about the system itself. 
other than uh, other than this assumption of translational invariance, um, and which is a fancy mathematical term, but basically it's saying that as long as you don't bake into the model that some opinions are special, as long as the model is sort of neutral with respect to any particular political opinion, then like it necessarily will have the result that uh, um, that uh, unstable elections uh, have negative representation. So it's sort of a general property that holds um, regardless of, you know, whether you have um, regardless of whether you have like you know a primary system or whether you have multiple parties um or whether you have a parliamentary system um or you know the exact structure of the voting laws etc um and so you know looking for those sort of general properties is one thing we're trying to do um sort of generalizing from that a little bit um were uh there's this concept in physics known as universality classes and the idea of universality classes this is sort of a more formal way of saying what I was sort of saying earlier is that many different systems, despite their de uh, differences in their details, will have the same large scale behavior. Um, and so this is originally um, so, for instance, to go back to the example of sound, sound is an example of a universal behavior because you see sound waves in a wide variety of materials, regardless of uh, you know what they're made out of. Um, there are other universal uh, behaviors uh, that are uh, harder to uh, that, um, require a little bit more background to describe. But the idea here is that you have these different classes. You could sort of think of like solid versus liquid as a gas. I'm now stretching the physics definition a little bit, but it's in the same spirit as sort of universal behaviors as well. Lots of materials, you know, even though they differ a lot on the microscopic level, organize themselves into, you know, three phases usually, solid, liquid, gas. And sometimes there, you know, there are multiple solid phases, solid, multiple solid phases, and there can be plasma phases and other things as well. But the point is there are these general sort of large scale buckets that things can fall into. And if you're trying to model a system, the first thing to do is to try to figure out which of these uh, universality classes, sort of which of these buckets the system falls into. Um, because if you model a system um, using a model that is in a different universality class than the system, you're sort of going to totally miss the behavior of the system. And that's the danger of an overly reductionist approach. If you include some details and not others, you might think that at a detailed level, you describe the system pretty well, but you might wind up in a totally different universality class. So a big thing that we're trying to do is just to map like the different phases of behavior, the different um, the different universality classes that a system could fall into. And once you have that map, you can then sort of look at the real world or conduct empirical analyses to figure out, okay, what is the system actually doing? And you know, once you have that broad map, you can then look at the system in increasing detail and you can start asking about interventions. You might not be able to predict things exactly. Like you might not be able to predict, oh, if we do this, which uh, exactly uh um you know which large-scale behavior are we going to see like you know let's say with a pandemic you might not be able to predict whether r is going to be less than one if you do a certain set of interventions or not but what you can um i.e you might not be able to predict whether the uh, virus is gonna um a virus is gonna um exponentially die out or exponentially grow um just if i Help, but you can't know what interventions will reduce the spread of the virus and which interventions will uh, increase the spread of the virus. So once you sort of thought about the system as, oh, there's sort of two, two real phases here. You either have exponential growth or exponential decline. Um, 
you know, that's a simplification. It's a, because of geography, that's a little bit more complicated. But once you've mapped that out, you can then ask like, okay, given a particular intervention, uh, what effect does it have? Uh, which, which direction does it push the system in? And so in that way, sort of starting at the large scale and moving to more detail, um, one can obtain the information that is most relevant to essentially what your policy goals are or how, what, how you're trying to intervene in the system. Right. Um, so when we talk about data linkage in public policy, we always, uh, or people always say that you can turn you know, something that you can call scientifically weak data into strong scientific results, which you can use in policymaking or in other social domain theory. And the, so, and, you know, seemingly unrelated data or data which at the first glance isn't really that interesting or that pertinent to the actual question can be linked with, so you can link different kinds of data sets in order to, arrive at surprising results. And these data sets can be very, they, they can be about anything and you can still reach exciting results. But where do you think, so I haven't really seen someone do anything outrageous yet. So people, usually people link behavioral data with economic data, with, uh, you know, uh, with biomarker and exposome data, but there is, where is the limit? Where is how scientifically scientifically uh, yeah, scientifically weak data, as it were, can you can you use in a useful manner? You know, would the color of someone's uh, of the book that someone has in uh, or the, the book that someone first bought in their life or or you know borrowed in the in their life be be useful or yeah where do you think that we should draw the line to or how much data do you think that that we should where do yeah where, where do we should we should we draw the line uh, beyond which it's not really useful to use the data i think this touches on an important issue which is that there's no such thing as a pure empirical analysis all empirical analysis requires some theoretical assumptions with which to interpret it Right. Um, now, a lot of times people will pretend that they're just doing empirical analysis and that they're not making any assumptions, but really they are making as implicit assumptions. Often those assumptions are of the form that like the data is independent or that like, you know, the data is uh, uh, or that like, you know, variables that we're not controlled for don't matter or uh, various other things. It depends on the specific analysis. Um, often. Uh, um, this is relevant to complex system science because often when people do sort of straight up empirical analyses, I mean, a classic example is say like, you know, a standard drug trial, you know, with some people you uh, give them the drug and with other people you don't give them the drug. And it seems like, okay, this is just a straight up empirical study. There's no theory behind it at all, but that's not true. You're, uh, you're making the assumption that like, you know, apart from whether you're giving that like this drug can sort of be considered as an independent factor. 
And when you consider sort of the way that this knowledge or this experiment is used, it often ends up treating like a lot of different interventions independently um, because you just have a bunch of different RCTs each for individual interventions. And you're sort of assuming that um, you can look at the effect of each intervention individually, as opposed to, oh, okay, maybe this drug works if a person happens to eat and have this sort of diet or this sort of lifestyle, but doesn't work if it, do if, if it doesn't. So maybe the drug works for half the people and doesn't work for the other half and you average it together and you're like, oh, look, the drug works. But that's not actually necessarily the right way to think about the thing. So, um, and so, you know, when just looking at data sets and finding correlations or uh, running experiments there, you have to have some sort of theory that's guiding um, the choice of data and the choice of analysis. And if you have, um, and you know, theoretical frameworks might be wrong. And so there's this constant interplay between having theoretical frameworks and then having, um, you know, data that either that fits into the theoretical framework and either seems to fit or doesn't fit. And you might have to modify the theoretical frameworks, but you're never off, you're, you're never operating in under like pure empiric empiricism. And so you have to use your existing models of the world to uh, guide your use of data. So this, this pertains to, you know, tabula rasa and other philosophical concepts of, of things that you know a priori and things that you don't, you cannot know and what assumptions you need to have. And, and then some people could argue, some people make this division. So that they say that the empirical side of things, the natural science guys, they can take care of it. And the, the rational assumptions that you have to make, the theoretical assumptions that you have to make, that the social science guys can take, take care of that. And in the social science guys, there is a divide between people who think that it's good to have a top-down uh, top approach where you try to look at the world in a, in a holistic way and you try to, and you, you try to work, and yeah, you just try to, in a qualitative way, just feed more data into your brain and you just try to, make theoretical assumptions and, and and try to determine by yourself what where what what you what you want to achieve and then based on that make uh, let the empirical guys uh, do the empirical stuff and then there are some who are more bottom up and they they think that you should try to work with binary questions at first and one binary question can be are moral values objective or not one binary question could be, um, uh, th does the uh, Abrahamic God exist or not? And there are other binary questions that you can try to take a look at, and then you can build off of that. And then you can deduce based on that, but that you can't deduce in all, uh, in infinity, you need, to, you need to then use induction. And then you need, for that, you need empiricism. So there are these top-down guys, and then there are these bottom-up guys. So firstly, do you believe that this division firstly between social science, social, social, social scientists working with the assumptions and, and natural scientists working with the empirical, uh, empirical stuff, is that good, firstly? And secondly, would you ascribe to the, the top-down approach or the bottom-up approach, or do you think that the complex systems research is some middle ground between the two? I mean, there are a lot of differences between the um, social sciences and the natural sciences. I think both social sciences and natural sciences both use theory and experiment. Um, in order for natural scientists 
to interpret data, we still have paradigms, and these paradigms have uh, shifted over time. Um, in uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, The uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, does a good job of, of describing this for the uh, natural sciences. I think for the natural sciences, we often forget about the fact that we have like um, that, like you know, the way in which we think about these things. Um, changes a lot over time because there's really like at any given time, there's often just a single dominant paradigm for how we think about the world. And um, while I think in the social sciences, you have more competing theories. And so it creates a, a different dynamic there. Um, with regard to your second question as to um, whether the top down or bottom up approach is better. Yeah, I really think that neither quite works. There's a, you know, I think there's a sense in which any claim one makes about the world, any statement about like, this is true or whatever, is just a representation. It's just a model in our brains. You know, even if I say like, oh, there's a cup in front of me or there's a computer in front of me, um, you know, that's a, that's a particular way that my brain is um, dividing up the world. It's deciding that the collection of quantum fields, I'm going to group this collection of quantum fields that is interacting with my retinas into objects, one of which I'm going to call a computer and another which I'm going to call a cup. And, um, and, and, you know, in those cases, those are obviously very useful ways to group the data. But when one starts talking about more complex and nuanced systems and nebulous systems like social systems, it's not always clear what the best way is to, uh, it's not always clear what the best way is to, uh, um, to group, uh, to divide up the world, how to carve up the world into different domains, even what binary questions does one want to ask? Because when asking a binary question, you're making an assumption that the world can be sort of divided up into like, you know, this thing existing or this thing not existing or this thing being true or false. Um, and so I think one needs uh, some degree of uh, flexibility. Um, one can hold on to models as long as they're useful and as long as they're giving one useful information about how to act in the world, but one also has to recognize that they're not absolute truth and they might not be uh, useful in all circumstances. And so I think one needs a certain degree of fluidity. And unfortunately, I don't know if academia, to what extent academia encourages this fluidity. I think academia um, encourages people to sort of stick to certain frameworks and ways of thinking about things. Um, but, but, you know, one might need to rapidly shift frameworks depending on the problem or depending on the particular goal that one is trying to uh, achieve. Can you send me the link to the book that you mentioned and the Nature Physics uh, paper that your reviewer uh, wrote so that the listeners can take a look at it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Can you remind me to do that after this uh, recording? Yeah, I can do that. Okay, so let's move on from, from, uh, from this and uh, talk about... This question, uh, what is the hardest thing in your work? Yeah, I mean, it's a, there are a lot of uh, difficult things, obviously, in research. Um, I think, so one difficult thing is that one, one approaches a problem and one's asking like, what is the best way to think about the problem? But one doesn't, before one even has a framework with which to think about it that can be a very difficult moment because you're sort of trying things out and you're playing around uh, with you know, various models, but you're not actually sure what is the right way to describe the system. 
And, you know, one way to do this is to sort of look into the literature and um, see how people have described the system before and then add something to it. But, you know, whatever ways that people describe the system before, you know, those have already been like, you know, elaborated on to a large extent in the literature. And so additional elaborations might be making like 5% corrections to assumptions that were only like 50% correct. Um, and so um, that might not necessarily be the best approach to take with research. And so um, often with my research, I'm sort of trying to look for totally new frameworks with which to think about things, not that these frameworks are necessarily correct or absolutely correct or better than the existing models, but they're, uh, um, um, but they're, but they're, they're, they're a different way of looking at the thing, a different angle, something that the existing models miss. Um, and ideally these frameworks can transcend and include the existing models. And in that sense, actually do uh, include like a new way of looking at things that sort of explains by why both the existing approach, when the existing approaches work and when the existing approaches don't work and, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, that sort of a phase of uncertainty of, you know, there are like, you know, almost infinite possibilities of how I could carve up the system or what are the right variables to uh, use to describe the system and trying to narrow in on something that really captures a behavior of interest. That can, um, that can be difficult. Um, yeah. So, okay, so the, the, what's basically difficult or the, the bottom line is it's, it's difficult to choose a, a framework to work off of. Um, so when well, to create the framework, not only not even just to yeah choose, but to yeah, to build it sort of from scratch. Yeah, because you don't really want to do as other people have done, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's value to uh, there's value to uh, elaborating on existing frameworks, but I think the problems that I'm drawn to are often questions where you know I think that um, I'm often drawn to questions where I think that like, you know, there's something that's missing in existing frameworks. And so adding on to the existing frameworks can help tell you some more information, but it won't tell you information that's sort of outside of the foundational assumptions of the existing frameworks. And so I'm always interested in like sort of questioning the assumptions of the existing frameworks and uh, how to create like, you know, a new model that like maybe, um, that maybe like makes a different set of assumptions um, because, you know, I think often there's a tendency to go deep, but often I think breadth is uh, important as well. So when developing these new principles, you know, the, when I, okay, so for example, if I try to, or when the younger version of myself was trying to, to get better at playing football, for example, I could, for example, go onto YouTube and try to, to look uh, and try to read about certain uh, skill moves to try to learn them. And when I, and if, uh, or, or, you know, not just skill moves, but, you know, just search in a certain way on YouTube and then try to get better. And if I didn't really achieve sufficient results, even though I did that, then, you know, I think the basic mechanism that everyone has is to try to see what is the common denominator or what are the the, the common denominators um, in in the way that I search. So for example, I 
for example, you know, one example could be that I just used single words. So that, that could be one common denominator. And then I could try to, instead of using single words, I could, I could say that, okay, next time I will write whole sentences when in the search bar, or I could write whole, you know, whole questions. One other common denominator could be, oh, I, I did this on YouTube. Maybe I should try different things. So you, one, one tries to find common denominators in, in what, I, one, what, what one did before, and then one tries to do something else. And in a similar way, we try to differentiate between, between shapes and stuff. Do, is, is, is that the, 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 is, is, is the actual hardship that you're experiencing when trying to build these frameworks? Does that stem from trying to explicitly define these these common denominators, or is it about mem or having them in memory? Or yeah, and when it comes to memory, is it hard to to have to remember the the actual problem, or to remember what solutions you or the the stages that you or, or the path to the solution itself? Or is is it more of a computation, or is the power, or is the problem more? of a computational sort that it's compet computationally irreducible in some sense. I think like the, yeah, the most difficult thing is one has like all of these intuitions about systems. Um, you know, one, one has, let's say, you know, one's thinking about pandemics or economics, one might have various intuitions, various properties, various sort of anomalies that one sees. Like, you know, oh, standard economic theory says that free trade should be good, but, you know, I, I observe all these counterexamples. Or, you know, labor markets should be efficient, but then I look at, like, how things are actually working and they don't actually work quite in that way. And so one sees a bunch of interconnected uh, different uh, intuitions or takes upon uh, these uh, systems. And, and uh you know, a lot of them feel like they fit together intuitively into like some sort of structure. But, you know, it's like the key is like trying to like really pin down a, a set of uh, a set of assumptions or a set, not really a set of assumptions. Even you can make the assumptions later when you're trying to solve the model. I don't actually know if that's the most difficult part. The most difficult part is even describing what variables you want to use to describe the system. Like, what are, you have all these things intuitively that feel important that might be sort of disparate, but you can sort of feel that they're all sort of interconnected with one another. And so you, you don't really feel like you can describe some of them without describing others as well. Um, and the question is, what is the right description of the system? What is the right mathematical description? Once you have a mathematical description that you feel good about, then you can start, then it, now you can start asking, okay, what are reasonable assumptions or approximations I can make so that I can actually like, you know, get some insight out of this model. I think that's actually a little bit easier. Um, and I think that's something that's not always like talked about. Like often when people talk about models, they talk about like solving the model being the difficult part, or they talk about like, you know, making the assumptions, but there's a step even before that, which is like, what variables does one write down? And that's super important because that which variables you write down defines what information is included and what's not included. And that's sort of this, uh, that's a very big assumption. That's like, but it's an assumption that's not even um, specified within the model because the model assumptions are all described in terms of the variables that you chose.
variables. So this is like sort of a meta assumption, which is uh, which variables do you even want to include and not include? And there's sort of an implicit assumption that a lot of people might not, you might not even realize, maybe the researcher himself doesn't even realize, which is that I've decided that all of these variables that I haven't included are not important. And so that's a, and yeah, so making that sort of leap is I think, uh, is is what's most difficult. It's interesting that you mentioned it's that people usually don't talk about this meta assumption aspect. That that, that is what's hardest. Hardest. Um, the most basic thing or the most elementary thing that people don't talk about, in my opinion, is you know when you're talking with yourself or when you're when you're conscious about your the 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 mechanisms in your own thinking or your yeah, when you're trying to follow your own thinking in a you know in a very uh, yeah when you when you're trying to talk with yourself basically or follow your your own thoughts and try to to, to tweak them or nudge them you know that that's where a lot of things happen and yeah people don't really talk about that in detail either but uh, some researchers are very so when people talk about economics people usually say that if you have money it's easier for you to get more money. Uh, do you think that in the field of, in, in academia, do you think it's easier to, do, do, do you think that the people who are successful, is it easier for them to be, become more successful? And if so, is that because they have, they are consciously thinking about tweaking their their, their thinking structures and and, uh, and nudging their uh, themselves when they are th- talking with themselves, or do you think it's something which is a bit more passive? Like, I think there was some um, uh, there was some viral video about uh, in which robots just fell down uh, uh, from a hill in a very elegant way, but but there was no program. It wasn't like they had prog- programmed them to do like that. It was just that their structure, the way that they were built enable that is it something like that which is a bit more passive or is it a bit more yeah what do you think about this yeah, so i think one has to uh, first distinguish like define what one means by success if by success one means like you know traditional academic measures of success like lots of citations on the paper you know well respected in the field etc then certainly um you know and people like uh I think people have discussed this. There's a Barabasi's model of preferential attachment, which is sort of like, you know, okay, the more cited your paper already is, the easier it is for it to get more citations. And I think that's like sort of true in academia as well. Like the more well-known you already are, the easier it is for you to do certain things, like make certain research correct connections to get more grants, et cetera. I'm not sure if, you know, the more established you already are, the easier it is for you to come up with uh, new ideas. I think there is a something where like, you know, some academics might just like be better at research and others. So the ones who have, you know, done good research in the past are more likely to do good research in the future, but that's not necessarily causal. Um, And, you know, sometimes I think that like often you find that like a lot of good work is done by young people or people who are new to the field who have a different outside perspective. Because I think there is a sense in which, you know, the more um, entrenched you are in the field, the more, but you know, the more you think about things in a particular way, the better you are at thinking about it in terms of in that way, but also that can like block out thinking about things in terms of different ways, even on a subconscious level, it might just like cause those thoughts not to come in, come to mind. Um, so 
you know, often a lot of great scientific advances have been made by younger people or people from other fields um, or so. I think there's like a lot of a, a mix of factors going on, sort of like what I described. So, and you know, if you, if you dive deeper into this, and, and and define success as minimizing uncertainty, or yeah, minimizing uncertainty in some way, uh, maybe not minimizing uncertainty itself, or but maximizing the amount of uncertainty minimized by a by a, in a certain amount of time. Um, do you think one can, give, one can feel how important the question is? Um, or do you think that there has to be some kind of... So, for example, when sometimes I don't know about, about how, how I should go about a, a certain decision. But then someone says that, okay, um, I think that you should do this and tries to steer me into one direction. And then after that, that has happened, I can get a feeling that, oh, no, I... I don't agree with that, or I can feel bad about that, and then I can then I know what I what I think about what about the decision, and then I can do the opposite of what I have been told, or I can be quite happy with with what I have been told, but I need that initial nudge. For you yourself in your daily work, do you feel the need of getting a nudge, or do or, or are you yourself able to you know just step out of the the uh, the work and just kind of see it from a third person's perspective? I definitely know the phenomena you're talking about. Like often, often when one's thinking about things, one's using a certain mode of thought that's sort of very explicit and is relying on certain assumptions and, you know, therefore is including some information and leaving out others. And then sort of when you actually move to do the action or if someone's like, yeah, you should just do this. It's sort of, really makes you imagine actually doing the action, which engages like parts of your brain that are sort of more subconscious or intuitive that have other information. And so, you know, from your set of explicit assumptions, you may have come to some conclusion or often you can't come to any conclusion at all because like you sort of realize that it's all like sort of circular and you have two sort of sets of irreconcilable assumptions that can't be resolved within whatever you're thinking about. So you're sort of going in loops, but, you know, sort of deeper down, you sort of have a feeling or other information that pushes you in one way or the um, or the other. Um, so yeah, I've certainly uh, experienced that, and uh, yeah, I think that's like a general like balance of uh, trying to uh, you know navigate through life uh, is you know when to you know when to be when to sort of go with one's intuition, when to step back, and when to like sort of narrow in and use like explicit computation. I think often you know, especially in modern society, we have a um, tendency to. Uh, overuse this sort of explicit way of thinking, overthink things. Um, and which is not to say that thinking about things explicitly isn't very useful, it is. Um, but you know, because it's so useful, we might tend to do it like a little bit too much. And there are a lot of reasons for this. And I'd recommend this book called The uh, Master and His Emissary by uh, Ian McGilchrist, uh, which sort of talks about this. Right, so it's very interesting that you mentioned that you know you can go in circles and loops. Uh, in the previous uh, podcast episode, I actually spoke with uh, Professor Carl Fristen, and we discussed this. So his he he and he mentioned that he hopes that his free energy principle 
in the end becomes a tautology so that it just doesn't say anything new. And yeah, we discussed this, that sometimes you try to gather a lot of information, you try to minimize uncertainty, but then you, you kind of, you kind of reach a state and reach a point where you, you, you just think that you haven't really realized anything. So another example of this is virtue ethics. So you, one could argue that virtue ethics is just a circular thing, but still there's some value to it. And he, he, Carl Friesen often mentions natural selection. So he says that natural selection, the, the, the theory of natural selection doesn't, doesn't really say anything new. It's just that you define natural selection in a way that, you know, so he, he just mentions, he just argues that that is a tautology in itself. So you, you define selection in a way that, so you define terms in a way that makes sense in a certain theory, but then the theory is true per definition. So that, that's, that's really the idea. That's right. All theories are tautological. Mm. All theories are, you know, just mathematical, all theories in their purest form, at least, are sort of mathematical statements. And so they're helpful because they, they carve up the world in a certain way. When one talks about natural selection, one is giving one a certain way of thinking about the world. But the, yes, the theory itself is tautological. Um, virtue ethics, right? It's like, you know, it itself is tautological, but it gives one a certain way of thinking about the world, which is very different than like the utilitarian way of thinking about the world, which is, you know, um, but also different than the deontological way of thinking about the world. Um, and so, you know, yeah, the, 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 or I guess what are, what are you getting yeah, at? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. But when we are trying to measure, so we, we talked about how should we de define success in the field of academia? How should we do it? It's it's hard to, you know, okay, so a theory is valuable, but it's it's still a tautology. And I think that many people and in, in the field of physics, for example, many people, they, they want to come up with a theory of everything, especially theoretical physicists. They really want to come up with a theory of everything. But the point is that you always run into this problem that everything is a tautology. So yeah, how should one should one try to run away from that and do something which is more linear and and uh, yeah, just try to accumulate knowledge? And in the field of policymaking, people usually say that oh, accumulation of knowledge isn't the same as or accumulation of information isn't equal to, to knowledge. That's what that's a buzz sentence in the field of policymaking. So there you have there they are arguing for the opposite. They want you to acquire knowledge, but then that in itself leads to the tautologies. Yeah, how, how do you reason around this? Well, I think all explicit thinking is in a certain sense tautological because all explicit thinking is relying on certain assumptions. Um, so, you know, ultimately what you want to do, ultimately, like, you know, humans are living their lives, right? Ultimately what, you know, and ultimately as any individual person, I just want to know how to make like good decisions. And good decisions for myself. If you're a policymaker, you want to make good decisions, um, you know, for uh, the, uh, you know, for whatever your policies are trying to do for your country. But, you know, ultimately, like the question is how to make decisions. Ultimately, like the only thing that actually counts is action. 
And so, you know, it's not that like some theories or whatever is tautological and other stuff is like, you know, not everything is just trying to give, is, is, everything is moving towards this purpose of trying to help one, you know, take uh, better actions, ultimately speaking. And um, I think, I mean, action has a sort of flavor, I think, that's like very, um, that sort of seems very practically oriented, but I don't mean it like that either. Right. Like if a theory, you know, if something's beautiful, that like, you know, can be intrinsically valuable because, you know, even looking at the world in terms of actions is a certain way of like characterizing the world. And, you know, I could frame things in terms of I have decisions to make and my life is a series of decisions, but I could also frame things as like, you know, I just sort of like flow through life and, you know, life is just like an experiencing of beauty. And, you know, neither of those frames is really like the correct, the single correct way to look at life. Both of them will make more sense in different situations. And there are other frames as well that are not included by either of those two. Um, so, you know, the ultimate goal, um, so, you know, to bring this back to the theory of everything, I think, you know, I think if someone were to create a elegant, convincing theory that like unified gravity and all the other uh, particles in physics, you know, that would be quite elegant. And a lot of people would find a lot of beauty in that. And, you know, it may help, you know, sometime in the future, maybe, maybe not, but it might help guide future research. It might help us discover things we didn't even know were there to discover. So, you know, but or it might just be, so, you know, that seems like a valuable pursuit. I mean, I think the difficulty with the theory of everything is that people have been trying for a very long time without, um, without much success, but, you know, I don't, that doesn't, I don't know if that, that doesn't make it like a less uh, worthwhile, uh, a less worthwhile goal. Um, you know, as, as an individual, you have limited time. So you got to decide, you know, what things are, what questions are most important to you. And, um, and uh, you know what? What research uh, most appeals to, uh, most appeals to you personally? Um, what do you enjoy? Often, what you enjoy is related to what you'd be good at or what you have a good contribution to. Um, so, uh, so often that's like often what you find joy in is like a good guide also of like how you can be like useful to the world. But you know there are a lot of factors that go into these uh, decisions. So you mentioned that yeah. So yeah, you know you can either either frame your life as a set uh, as a series of decisions or you can just try of or see yourself as floating in uh, through life and you know floating through through life is it floating is the wrong word but you could you know is life you know if i frame life as a series of decisions um sort of distancing myself from the world i'm sort of standing apart from the world and i'm looking at like something that I'm looking at different possible actions and then choosing between them. And so sometimes it's necessary to do that. It's necessary to think of counterfactuals, but that's inherently separating yourself from the world. And there's other, another way of thinking about like, you know, that you're actually part of the world, that you're, um, that you're, uh, that, you know, you act on the world, but the world's acting on you. And um, as well, uh, uh, I mean, we're getting very philosophical here. Right, but... and we are time and time again getting into Carl Friston's work. But then, yeah, so if we, if we, yeah, so when even that, making that or seeing yourself as, I think we kind of understand what you mean when you say floating, even though it's not the really right word, we understand that. So even if you 
that's that's a decision in itself if you want to float through the world or if you don't want to float through the world so and anyhow you you mentioned that yeah so theories of so so when that's in itself is an is a decision but there is no you can't really there is no nothing that tells you whether uh, you know about what what is right or what is wrong right so yeah, at least not at least not in the in the physical, if you talk in physical terms, so that's I think that's where where the idea of re- religion comes in, and the idea of you know filling a void in our a void comes in, and that's where met- metaphysics comes in, and that's where I think God comes in and stuff. Do you think that so religions can be seen as as theories of everything as well? Do you think that they they that they avoid the problem of being tautologies or by, by by referring to at least the Abrahamic religions by referring to God, or do you think that that in itself is also a tautology? Yeah, I think religion is ultimately a very personal thing, and I think religion is a very personal thing because ultimately, religion comes down to one's own personal connection to it. Often, we frame religions as a set of beliefs that one should believe in or not believe in. But all of those set of beliefs are not actually, all of those set of beliefs are all of like, you know, the things that religion, uh, you know, claims are a framework. And that framework is supposed to, you know, help an individual, you, you know, resonate with an individual and in, in, uh, in sort of feeling connected to, you know, the world, the universe, um, you know, many people would call it God, et cetera. Um, but there's a, there's a philosopher, Martin Buber. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he has this great quote, which he says that uh, God can only be spoken to, or I'm paraphrasing here, but he says God can only be spoken to, never about. So, you know, whenever religions or other people are talking, you know, about, you know, religious beliefs, or whatnot, um, they are making certain approximations. They're taking a certain frame of looking at the world. And that's not ultimately what religion is supposed to be. Religion is ultimately supposed to be about this thing that can only be sort of experienced personally, also collectively as well. But it's this thing that can only sort of be lived. It can't be like sort of externalized. Or, um, and I think that's where a lot of the conflict goes, is that people try to take these things that like they're that are meant to be lived um, and they're meant to be acted through, um, through you, and then try to put it into some sort of rigid framework. Um, and yeah, and I think, and I think those rigid frameworks, uh, you know, they're designed to some extent to, um, to help facilitate um, leading a good life. And I think they work for some people, but, you know, I think sometimes they can also like get in the way of uh get in the way of uh that and you know that's why you have a lot of people who like reject religion um but i, I think uh i think yeah, a lot of times people sort of miss the point here on a general level yes so you mentioned putting things into rigid frameworks but on a general level it's about putting things into words and that's i think that's where the error occurs because you can't really put the you can't really so the, the, you can't really put it put it into words but you can't really compress that into words without uh, the compress- compression being lossy. And so and we before we talked about uh, coming up with theories of everything, 
when one tries to come up with theories of everything, the basic idea is to describe things in words. And the basic idea is to do it. You, you can't really avoid doing that in a non-lossy way, but you want to do it in a way so that the theory of everything can be can be can can be said to describe everything without without running into contradictions based on the language that the theory of everything is written into, right? Yeah, I want. I mean, I want to first like distinguish when a physicist talks about a theory of everything, they really just mean like a grand unified theory, like a theory of a that includes both gravity and the standard model. Um, you know, when other people talk about a theory of everything, sometimes they mean literally describing everything in the universe. But that, that's actually broader than the physicist's definition of the theory of everything. Mm. The physicist's definition of the theory of everything is describing things from within the frame of physics. But even such a theory would not actually really describe consciousness. And, you know, someone might argue, oh, well, you know, the brain is just evolves from all of these like physical laws. But that's actually a circular argument because the physical um, laws that you're talking about, like let's say okay, you say, okay, the world is made of this and this and this sort of quantum fields. Let's say even that a physicist succeeded in uh, finding the grand unified theory, theory of everything. So they have all of these, like, they're like, yep, yeah, this is what the universe is made out of. And this is what consciousness is made out of too. But this is a circular argument because those very things that they said consciousness were made out of, they're only speaking about because they are conscious. So those things were also made out of consciousness. Um, and so I think there's a sense in which, you know, there, there's no such thing as a true theory of everything. Um, you can try to create a broad theory that encompasses large swaths of the world, but any theory of the world necessarily requires someone standing apart from the world in order to describe that theory. And so, you know, that theory of everything is not including whoever is using the theory or, um, or you yourself. So, and, and so I think that's a, that's an important point to make. Right. Yes. Got it. But then, okay. So if you, if you go back to, you know, language compression and com and you know, describing things again and again in a more efficient way. Um, you know, when when you when one first learns about Markov chains or Markov processes, uh, one learns about, oh yeah, not, not Markov chains. Sorry, Markov processes, Markov, Markov decision processes (MDPs). One learns about you know. So, so in the actual expression, there is a variable which only includes qualitative information about one point in time, one point in in the posterior time. But then in that one moment, you could include information about information that encompasses or includes the effects of a lot of time. Are, you, are, you, are uh, Am I making sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. So when we are trying to compress language, because that's, even if, okay, we can't create theories or everything in the, in the, in the you know, all-encompassing sense, but we can, we need to compress things in order to deal with them. If we would create an emotion transfer device, which would incorporate, in the way that Markov decision processes incorporates a lot of information from a lot of time, which would incorporate Emo which would transfer emotions, which in turn incorporate a lot of information from a lot of uh, which from a broad from a large 
set what do you call it a large interval of time um yeah do you think that that would be a useful thing to invent or do you think that would be detrimental i think um you know any compression that's truly lossless is uh generally um can be obviously useful uh generally lossless compression relies on a certain assumption of probability distribution of the information that um you're transmitting so you know you know let's say i am speaking you might notice like oh if i like describe things in terms of like normal letters and and, and stuff you know that's how, that would be the most efficient way to describe things if all combinations of letters were equally likely but we know that that's not the case and so because of that we can take advantage of the fact that uh um that uh, certain combinations of letters um are more common than others in order to describe things in a shorter amount of space and that's obviously you know useful if that's the goal um of course you know a detriment of that is you might have less redundancy so if there's an error it might be uh harder right like you know one property of the english language is if i were to take a book and then i were to change like if i were to like remove like you know one letter from each word you could still probably read the book probably and that's because there's a lot of redundancy and you know it's probably intentional in the way that language evolved because you know we didn't want language to be so sensitive that if you miss a single syllable you're not going to be able to understand what someone's saying um but uh you know but to the extent that lossless compression is possible that's good if the compression is losing information then it depends on you know what your goal is sometimes you want there are various trade-offs in uh, these explicit descriptions and sometimes you want to um uh sometimes you're willing to give up some information so that you can focus on like the mo the information that's like most important for the task at hand yeah but this this uh, this question is also about or one point that i think that we are missing here is that right now so when i when i'm making these these podcast episodes i'm speaking i'm always speaking to a new new guest and every guest have has their own their own way of using language and you have to and in every podcast you try to create a coherent story in every episode you try to create a coherent story in which you try to describe kind of everything that or you it's something you try to come up with some kind of theory of everything or some kind of equivalent to that or version of that or it's not a theory of everything but it's something comparable to that that you're trying to create with that new language and but the the question is are we communicating in order to come up with something with something or minimize uncertainty as Carl Friston would say or are we trying to or is the goal to communicate you know is 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 the end goal communication itself that that's one question so the the equivalent to that in Carl Friston's terms would be so are we trying to minimize uncertainty for its sake or are we trying to do something after minimizing the uncertainty so yeah that, that that's i think the point that we are missing what, what what's your stance on this yeah i think you know whenever you do anything there's some ultimate 
you know, there are certain drives that you have. There are certain decisions that you make that just feel obvious and good and that you don't feel conflicted about. There are things, and there's sort of maybe, there are things that like, you know, you're, that just feel like the natural thing to do. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, to some extent, that's what, you know, humans often do or try to move towards. And sometimes we get confused. And so, you know, we're unsure of what the right thing to do is, or, you know, we have a lot of inner conflict because part of us is trying to do one thing and part of us is trying to do another thing. Um, you know, maybe one way to, um, I think there's probably, I think to say that the only thing we're trying to do is to minimize uncertainty. Um, and I'm not actually, and, and I'm only uh, superficially familiar with uh, Carl Friston's work. Um, but to say that the, um, but, you know, for the only thing we're trying to do is to minimize uncertainty. Perhaps that's correct, but maybe, you know, maybe that's correct because within our, um, and, and maybe Carl Friston says that, because like within ourselves, there are certain like sort of built in things that we want to do. And the way that we like sort of achieve those natural goals is by, is by like sort of bring those goals in alignment with the world. So, you know, whether you want to describe it as minimizing uncertainty or whether you want to describe it as having some other goal, maybe like two different ways of describing the uh, same uh, phenomenon. Right. So we are trying to communicate in order to achieve our goals, which in turn maybe is to communicate itself. So that's kind of a circular thing, just as tautologies are circular. Yeah, there are many circles. Anyhow, when we are, so we are on a, when we, we are kind of, when we talk about quote unquote, quote unquote, deep things as we're doing now, people usually struggle a bit or it's not really, it's hard for people to be as, or to seem as certain about things as they do. So before we were talking about your research and you were a bit more certain about it. Do you think this is because, and you know, this is something that everyone does. If I talk about these things, I usually hesitate a bit more. Is this because it's harder to express these things or do you think is, is, is it harder to compress these things into knowledge, into language? Or uh, so, so is it an expression problem or is it, or do you think that it's just that we don't know? Do you think that we know some sub-agent in our heads know, but that it's hard for us to exp express it either to the conscious parts of our brain or to others? Or is it something that, or, or do we just don't have the answer? None of the sub-agents in our head or levels in, our, in ourselves, in our embodied condition. Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion, right, in the world. There's a lot of internal confusion. There's a lot of confusion between people. When I try to communicate, you know, one way to think of the communication is, oh, I'm like pointing to this explicit thing, this object that's like objective, and I'm just trying to describe that thing to you. But I don't think that's actually quite correct. I think like ultimately the communication that I have with you is just boils down to the impact that my words have on someone else. And so if something's hard to talk about, it could be that just that you know, language makes it difficult for me to, you know, really have that sort of impact that sort of irons out differences in two people's worldviews or that, you know, maybe it's very crystal clear in my head, but I don't have a good way using words to like transmit that clarity to someone else. Um, 
or you know maybe or maybe it's not even clear in my head maybe different parts of my mind don't have like a crystal clear way of communicating that to each other things that are easier to talk about are things where we've already sort of agreed on a bunch of ground rules so we've already sort of there, there are things of the form that you know everyone sort of agrees on the same explicit picture so i can just sort of try to point to like something outside of myself and the more and the and the more we've like built up shared concepts the more we can the more we've built up shared concepts that we when we speak of individual words we're roughly speaking about the same thing you know whatever that actually really means um you know the easier it is to talk about something but i think with these very deep things that sort of get at like the very nature of how we parse the world itself we're sort of outside of the realm of really having um of really necessarily even using words in the same way or whatever and so the communication is really just trying to is really just two minds trying to interface with each other and you know in general this is a hard problem you know i would almost like try to argue that like this is sort of the norm that communication is actually really difficult and that when communication is easy that's actually the interesting thing like the interesting case is why is it that in some cases we are actually are able to communicate so well mm. like that's actually that's the mystery um but before yeah that's the mystery but before you mentioned that it's because it's because it's it's because you have a larger set of common assumptions and or and maybe that's due to yeah but it's sort of a mystery because what is like a larger set of common assumptions like even really mean yeah whatever it uh, means would you say that would you say that we learn more when we talk about things that are hard to talk about or do you think that that's just something yeah so this has to do with the language comp compression thing and the how much information you can put in a certain variable yeah it's about that do, do you think it's we learn more when we talk about these things or not no it depends what you mean by like learn more um you know i think if you engage in a more difficult conversation but like but actually succeed in like gaining some new understanding that could be like very valuable you could also engage in a difficult conversation and not make much progress um so i think it uh I think it uh, really depends. Often, I think you're, you know, if you think what is learning, right? Learning your okay. This is already like a way of looking at the world, a frame. So this is I'm not going to claim this is absolute truth, but one sort in a sort of materialist way of looking at the world, learning is about forming new neural connections, right? And so we can and so learning more might be forming more neural connections, or it might mean like forming more important or deeper neural connections. And you might make a claim that like when you're talking about like, you know, things with a lot of shared assumptions, you're sort of just moving around neural connections on the circuit on, on the surface. Like if I'm like, oh, yeah, the cup over there is blue. We already know a lot. And there's just this very surface level piece of information that I'm transmitting. But like, you know, when we talk about like sort of harder to talk about things, we're sort of getting at like deeper neural connections. And there can be entire ways in which our minds are sort of oriented or twisted differently. And, you know, so that can be very hard. But if you are actually able to like transmit some information or untwist some things or bring things more into alignment with one another, it like can be like more profound found yeah and by the way um we don't have any evidence that everyone looks at the blue at the color blue 
in the same way. And this doesn't have to just talk about philosophical things. I don't want to make this sound all like very abstract. Like this could be like, you know, two people with different political opinions, even like two politicians actually coming to a shared understanding. Um, you know, I think like, you know, you look around the world and there are some pretty deep political divides and they have to do with like very different ways of thinking about the world. Um, and, and these ways might be, you know, different than the sort of philosophical things we're talking about, although they might not be entirely unrelated either. And so you have these very deep, deep and you know, if you can act, there's a sense in which if you take two people from the opposite ends of the political spectrum and they're actually able to understand and learn something from one another, that's a pretty important thing that they learn. But, you know, often that doesn't happen. They just end up talking past each other. Well, you know, the difference between, you know, just acquiring information and digits, yeah, you know, which could be measured in digits or in gigabytes or whatever, and the difference between that and, and learning something uh, learning knowledge, you know, the, 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 yeah, expressing that is a bit explicitly is a bit, uh, you know, th questions regarding the, that are still open and non-sold. But okay, so if we, if we go back to the personal development side of things, before we mention that, so it's harder to talk about certain things, and when we when, when it comes to our memory we really need some emotional attachment to things in order to, to remember them. And in order to have an emotional attachment to things, I think you need external people's... You, it's often when you're in conversation with or in interaction with external people that, you, 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 that most emotions are provoked. And when you're trying... That interaction is often based on language. And so things that are harder to talk about are also harder to remember. So, for example, when I try to reason, uh, reason around these uh, harder to talk about topics or deep topics, it's, it's hard to, to have them, keep them in memory. Do you think that the explanation that I, that I offered right now is the whole story? Or do you think that there is some other aspect to why it's hard to keep to 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 rem keep rem remembering the chains of thought or the causal links that you're talking that you're keeping in mind it doesn't have to be causal links it could be contingency contingency links or whatever kinds of links but the links of thought do you think that's the whole story the memory aspect or or is there some computational problem there computational irreducibility this has to do with what we talked about earlier as well and you know do, do you think it's it's Useful to think about the memory in our brains and divide it into RAM and you know a bit longer term memory and stuff or or, or yeah yeah do you have any, anything to say about this? Yeah, I mean I'm not a uh, neuroscientist, but um, I think thinking about a brain like a computer can be a problematic analogy. Because, and you know, one way to think about this is the human memory is sort of very different than a computer memory. In a computer memory, you're like, this piece of information is located here. And so let me go find that, you know, located at this computer address. So then, I, and then you send that string of bits to your process, to your RAM, and it gives you back whatever is located there. But human memory is not really like that. Human memory is associative. It's sort of this associative map. and um, you know, we also know that human memory is not um, human memory is not perfect. 
like often we like reconstruct our memories. Um, so uh, we know that memory is not always entirely reliable. Um, you know, so I think memory is like this lo a lot more of a fluid thing. And if we could like remember everything all of the time, that would actually be overwhelming. Like I sort of used to think that it would be helpful if like I could just remember everything that I need, want, everything and I just had it at my fingertips. But then it's like, that would take like a lot of time to have to sift through all of that memory. You can't actually consciously just like go through all that memory and make a good decision. And that also just pushes the question up to what would like then, what would then guide the the part of your mind that's trying to decide which memory to focus on in a given moment. So instead the way our memory works is sort of like, you know, information comes up at a given time. And, you know, people for whom their memory is more efficient or whatnot, maybe they give them the right information at the right time. And that's a very complex problem, but I think that's what your brain is trying to do, is it's trying to give you the relevant information at the right time. Now, this might not be optimized for like taking tests or whatever. So in school, it feels like, you know, your brain's not giving you the right information at the right time. But for like a lot of uh, other activities, like social activities, often we will remember the right thing at the right time. And if we don't remember the right thing at the right time, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe there's some confusion or some disconnection or something we're blocking off um, that's going on there. But I don't want to think of it in terms of we don't have enough computational power or our memories aren't good enough or whatever. I want to think of it more in terms of, um, you know, more in terms of are things in our mind more fluidly arranged so that things sort of just naturally happen, that at the right time I get the right information, or are, thing, or is, or are things like sort of more fragmented? and require more like searching and which starts to feel inefficient and cognitively taxing. So what you said was very interesting because it, it, it ties into a question that I have asked many, uh, many, many, many um, previous guests. So you, you mentioned that, okay, so maybe there's a reason behind why we don't remember certain things in our test. And, and in the, in the way that people have a tendency to anthropomorphize God, people have a um, similar tendency to anthropomorphize the, this agent in our brain, this sub-agent in our brain, or whatever you want to call it, this, this domain in our brain that is hiding, hi, we could call it that if we want to anthropomorphize, hiding, hiding this information from us when our tests are ongoing. So, for example, some people say, Oh, you you failed this test. Maybe maybe that was the destiny. Maybe that was what should have happened. Maybe you would have, maybe if you would have a higher grade, you would go into a better or more competitive school. But maybe that wasn't what was best for you. That's just an example. Do what do you think about this idea of there is uh, of saying that there is some sub agent in our brains that is above our conscious level so that it knows more than we consciously know? I don't know if there's a single sub-agent that knows more than we consciously know. There's certainly, I think, uh, you can sort of think about like the ego, like the part of your brain that's always thinking as sort of a sub-agent. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's a particular agent. I think it's more of an emergent property, but you have like, your brain's trying to do a lot of things at once. And, you know, 
from that like emerges some broader things and let's say there's a part of your brain that really doesn't want to like you know get into this more competitive school now that part of there's another part of your brain that does want to do that right oh and this is and this is also a you know there's a danger to viewing yourself as fragmented because there's there's that's a, that is it there's there's advantages and disadvantages so one doesn't want to take the analogy that one's fragmented too far but there could be a sense in which you want to like um, in a certain sense because it you know it might mean that you're not really taking responsibility for all the different parts but there's a sense in which you might want to do you might want to um get into the better school and you might also not want to get into the better school overall now overall there's sort of maybe overall there's something that maybe feels more aligned for you um and so overall if your system is sort of running smoothly then maybe overall you know, it will act in a way that's like in accordance with the, your general goals. Of course, you have to also consider that if you get into that school, that means someone else did not. So, you know, maybe you're thinking about things too, like egotistically, and maybe it's like, is it actually like better in the grand scheme of things? Um, you know, not just for yourself, but for, you know, people overall. Interesting. But the point is that there's also a sense in which you can be confused. Maybe you don't talk to, maybe you're not really engaging with the part of yourself that doesn't want to go to the better school. Maybe you're pushing it away. And if you don't have that line of communication, if you're sort of pushing that away, then that part might like sort of sabotage you in a certain way. It might feel like the only way for it to like be heard or for it to like get its way is to like, you know, cause you to like, you know, mess up on the test. And so, and so then you might end up doing poorly on the test and not getting to the better school. And maybe that was for the best, or maybe it wasn't. But like because you weren't, because your your because your mind was sort of fragmented, you know, you sort of have a solution that like you you sort of have an inelegant solution that may or may not be correct, or at the very least that isn't using like the full power of your. You're sort of leaving it up to this uh, sort of random process of like of of inner conflict. Um, and uh, I and, you know that's not necessarily like the best way to go about uh, such a decision. It might not lead to the best solution. Right. Right. And, 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 okay. So, so, so you, you, now we're talking about, um, okay. So before, you know, just, just a side note question or yeah. So when people try to argue for, or, or when people try to teach others to read more, read quickly, uh, there are many YouTubers who are getting hundreds, hundreds of thousands of views uh, for for trying to teach people how to read quickly. They usually say that you shouldn't really read aloud in your head, and that you should just just read without without you know just repeating what you're reading in your head loudly. In the same way, now we talked about the brain and subagents, and uh, you know, do do you think we should when the brain no parses any kind any kind of information and before we talked about memory and what you should try to keep in memory and you said it's not really good to to keep too much stuff in memory at the same time it's good to filter things out do you think that and and so this process of filtering things out is done automatically by the brain partly and you could do it consciously by for example trying to not read aloud in your own head but do you think um, do, do you think that um, 
do you think do, do you think that it's um we are trying to hmm, do you think that we should try to um or, or that what if you if you do something wrong or that we can define doing something uh, we can define wrongdoing uh by by in this way that something something is wrong when it leads you to filter the wrong thing out at a subsequent point in time which in turn will lead you to do which in turn will lead you to do uh, to do something wrong because you have a lack of information assuming that you don't have this sub agent that knows everything which yeah we, we discussed earlier yeah you could view it like that you also have to understand that like, you know, viewing it as wrong is also like a, you know, there's a certain sense in which maybe it couldn't have been any other way. Maybe this was like a necessary lesson for you to learn. So, um, you know, but yeah, I mean, I think in general, one should strive towards like more uh, elegance. Just as a quick note regarding the uh, speed, like the speed reading uh, YouTubers. You know, part of the difficulty of such advice is that everyone's mind is different. So the same advice that might be good for one person might be bad for another, just because people's minds work differently. And also because people could take the same advice and interpret it differently. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that also depends on like what your goal is in reading. If your goal in reading is like to literally just like sort of get the information as fast as possible, you know, maybe, maybe that is helpful, but you know, sometimes you know, that sometimes reading more slowly, even if you have the same like retention of some details, maybe by reading quickly, you like prevent it from like impacting you as deeply or something. So I think, I just think one has to be like careful about like, you know, frames that are trying to teach people to be like as efficient as possible. And uh, yeah, anyway. Before when we talked about Carl Friston, we said that we, we spoke about minimizing uncertainty and stuff. And we said that we affect the world. We have an effect on the world, and the world has an effect on us. And we said that this this whole process, what we want to do is to that we have some goals in our in ourselves that we want to realize, and that's why we minimize uncertainty. That that was your comment. And these goals, there is some common denominator between my uh, everyone's internal goals if we can call them internal goals there has to be some common denominator between all of our uh, internal goals because that that's needed in if we otherwise we couldn't exist as as a society and some people argue that when we do when we make transactions for example with money when we buy something it's because so there's some common denominator in these goals. You could call it well-being or you could call it anything else. But some people argue that, that or, you could, or Carl Friston usually calls this uh, an attractive set, that we want to come closer to an attractive set. And then he means that in a physical sense, in a thermodynamic sense. He talks about phase spaces and stuff when he talks about attractive sets. Anyhow, when, we, when we're trying to get, okay, so people say that we make transactions when there is some when there is when there is some conflict or, or when we are not so let's say that everyone has this common denominator in their internal goals that we can call well-being then i'm thinking that i should be that i should do something or the, the, the proxy for that internal goal is different 
in this for in this point of time for me than for someone else. And we are interacting, and I need so I reckon that I need X, and the other person is reckoning that they need Y. I have X, they have Y, or vice versa. I don't know if I got that right, and I buy that. So that's a transaction. Do you think? So do you agree that there is some common denominator between all of our internal goals? And if so, how do you think that we should? Do you think that we we can empirically try to? derive proxies to those? I think that probably ultimately there's some, uh, and again, this sort of depends on what one means by goals, but I think, I think like ultimately it's probably true that if people really deeply understood and empathize with each other, they would be able to like get along or something. Yeah. And so um, but of course, you know, in practice, sometimes the divisions or the confusions or whatnot are so deep and so deeply ingrained that, um, you know, that in practice, it can seem like two different groups of people have diametrically opposite goals. And then even when two groups of people have diametrically opposite goals, they may have some things in common. You may have two groups that go to war with each other, but, you know, still maybe both want peace. So, you know, it's this very complex thing to sort of sort out and, you know, sorting out one's own goals and what, you know, bringing into alignment all of one's own individual various goals is like difficult enough. And then that becomes like sort of exponentially more difficult when you have to not only sort out your own individual goals, but also, uh, you know, between you and other people, you know, even sorting your own goals out with like your own with your family members or friends can be hard. And then, you know, doing that between larger groups of people. And then often what happens is in order for a group of people will align sort of on a particular goal, but they'll do that at the expense of becoming more of like creating a larger barrier between that group and other groups. And so, so it all becomes very, um, yeah, very challenging. Yeah. And this has, um, practice at least. yeah, and this has to do with Kant, uh, Emmanuel Kant's categorical imperative, which I have talked about in previous episodes. How, anyhow, speaking about goals is a good transition to the last question. Um, do you have any advice for uh, younger students? Just to uh, briefly say something about like Kant, Kant's categorical imperative sort of assumes that you can like make an explicit rule, but it leaves a lot like unanswered, like, you know, how does one, um, you know, how does one interpret that rule in any given situation? I think, honestly, I think it's a good rule of thumb, generally, like it, it is a good way of thinking about things, but I don't think it's necessarily like the whole answer or, um, but anyway, sorry, I, I, I agree, but I, I, I sometimes, I, I don't know if I have understood him and uh, precisely, you know, this is the problem with philosophers. You, if you say that you don't agree with them, the, the answer is probably that you don't really understand them. But then if you understand them, it's, it basically always comes down, come, comes down to that their theories are tautological in some sense. Yeah, I'm going to make a, I mean, that's like saying that all philosophers are necessarily correct. And um, yeah, and perhaps you disagree because you don't understand them. But I think, you know, Kant went crazy at the end of his life. And I don't think that's like unrelated to his philosophy. And I think it's, and I think, you know, if a philosophy drives one to be crazy, I think there's a sense in which there's 
at least something wrong with the philosophy, even if it has a lot of very valuable stuff in it. Um, and you know, I might say something similar about Nietzsche, although you know maybe the. Yeah, the but um, that's what came to my mind as well. Anyhow, yeah. Okay, so what <laughs> advice would you give to younger students? Younger students. Yeah, I'll keep I'll keep this advice like sort of more academically flavored because um, that's what I know best. But um, there's a great quote from C.S. Lewis where he uh, in in the Great Divorce, a short story, a great read. Um, but um, in it. Um, someone says, remember when you were a child and you asked questions to which you actually wanted to know the answer? And I think that's a great thing to keep in mind, I, um, especially like as an academic, as a researcher. If you are, as a researcher, asking questions that you genuinely care about the answer, you know, that puts you in a good position. If someone else scoops your work, you're not even that upset because now you have the answer. If you find, um, you know, and um, if you're asking questions so that you can be the one who answered them, now that's like sort of disconnecting you from like sort of the intrinsic joy or what's intrinsically valuable about the uh, about the research, and it can sort of lead one into all sorts of knots. Um, so, so yeah, at least to like academics, that would be my advice: uh, um, ask questions to which you genuinely want to know the answer. Um, and maybe one could generalize that uh, to, uh, you know, non-academic uh, fields as well. But um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and maybe one could call that a proxy to that very, in that internal goal that we cannot really describe. Many thanks for speaking to me, uh, Alex. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure too.